Wow, what a joy to be here with you to worship. What a great Savior. There's just no one like Jesus. Um, I do want to tell you a little bit about Gospel Hope, some things that are going on. Even when you see the pictures, you, you just need to see the shadow of Jesus over it all because he's present there, he's present here. I love coming to worship at Gospel Grace and uh, always so grateful. And I think part of it is too, like I don't carry any responsibility today other than the word, which is significant, but you know what I'm saying as a pastor and kind of when, when you're on your home court, there are a thousand things populating your, your mind and heart at any given moment, but I, I always feel such freedom when I, when I come here and worship with you. So thank you uh, for ministering uh, to my heart today. Uh, I'd like to just walk you through uh, kind of a pictorial record of what God's doing at Gospel Hope right now. Our family moved here uh, five years ago, and uh, four and a half years ago, Trinity Baptist Church became Gospel Hope Church. Uh, it's a, the church itself is a little over 30 years old now, and uh, just to see what God is doing in recent years is terrific. Now, we're in Riverton, so that's about 25 minutes south-southwest of here, and it's very much a suburban uh, community, and so the church itself has uh, a suburban vibe to it, and um, that's not better or worse. It's just it's just different. Um, but you'll see, I think, many similarities, and and the greatest of which is that the the Lord loves people all around the world in every kind of setting, and He continues to pursue them. So, without further ado, let me uh, just walk you through some things about uh, Gospel Hope Church and. Um, are we on the screen yet? If you can go ahead and throw up the, the PowerPoint that I have there. Uh, like you, we share the same mission, and I took just a little, uh, little portion of that. We're, we are committed to making gospel-centered, grace-saturated disciples of Jesus Christ, and uh, God is doing that. And if you were seated in the back of our little sanctuary this morning, uh, that's what the view would probably look like uh, ar around you. One of the first things that, that God has done is just to breathe breath into a lot of our hearts and souls through our, our gatherings for worship e each Sunday. We only have one service at this time, but that time may, uh, a time may come soon where we need to go to a couple of services. Uh, and they'll be meeting or starting worship in about 10 minutes. Uh, 9.30 is our usual time. We're also growing in community, and you can see uh, from some of the, the faces and uh, expressions that there's great joy, and we often hear almost every week from guests who come in, wow, this, these people really see, seem to like each other. Like, you guys hang out, and you talk, and you laugh, and we say, well, yes, we do. That's what Jesus does in your heart, and he brings people together who would probably never get together on a regular basis, uh, and so we share Christ and uh, that, that joy just spills out. That top shot is kind of a panoramic view of, of Riverton uh, City Park during town days this summer. And town days, like many other communities here in the city, is, is typically packaged with July 4th, and it's just a big, big deal in Riverton. And we, the, the last couple of years, have begun to dive in on that with a greater commitment, and partly with the help of Plant Camp, some of you uh, were even a part of this this summer. And because that's in July, then we begin what we call Picnic and Prayer in June. And every Wednesday night through the month of June, people just bring a, a picnic supper, and we meet in Riverton City Park, and we pray on the very ground 
that we're going to evangelize on and serve on uh, in July. And it's been wonderful to see the momentum build uh, year by year. There is a young lady coming to our church right now who we met during Riverton Town Days a year ago. The somewhat uh, sad uh, and humorous part of it is she, she thought we were another church and went to another church very briefly after last year's uh, Riverton Town Days and didn't find much there. And then this summer came back around and realized she had visited the wrong church. And so she's, she's been coming. And uh, she's hearing the gospel, and we're praying that she will believe it for herself. So Riverton Town Days puts us face-to-face uh, with thousands of people in just, just a, a couple of days. And kind of the big event, and that's what the panoramic shot is, uh, that the, the July 4th, or in this case, I think it was actually July 3rd, there was a big concert and fireworks display, and they estimate 25,000 people were there. And one of the things that we do is not only set up a tent there, but we also clean up after the parade and then after uh, the, the big fireworks and, and concert is over. And, and that's been a really amazing thing to people. Like, it never occurred to anybody else to stick around and serve. And we really weren't trying to do it to get publicity, but it's turned into that. Um, Gospel Hope has uh, established... Uh, by God's grace, a, a sweet reputation there. Then we also did just some Saturday morning cookouts at one of the big parks and splash pads near us and uh, served people. And again, there's just kind of this, what are you guys doing? Well, why is this free? And are you sure? Can I give you something? Like, is there a hidden, uh, you know, a, a hidden meaning or purpose here or whatever? And we've had multiple opportunities just to share the gospel in that setting. And don't we all love pictures like this? People who come to faith in Christ uh, who see their sin as it is, but who see Jesus for all that he is, and they believe. And they turn from their sins, and they turn to him, and as part of that discipleship process, say, I, too, want to publicly proclaim what Jesus has done for me. I want to be baptized as he has commanded. And so that's, that's just a few photographs from the, the past year uh, just the great privilege we've had. And I, uh, some of you are noticing maybe the t-shirt I'm wearing, Grace, Hope, and, and Peace. We do love to tell people we're a part of a little family of churches that we hope will grow and grow. And I don't know, like, the t-shirt's gonna have to be printed on in the back in years to come as God allows us to add, add other churches to this family. Um, just more that's taking place. God has given us a lot of young families and uh, the, the back half of our building, it's only five little classrooms it's all kids stuff. Two of them are dedicated to nurseries and the other three to children's ministries, including our high school group. Uh, on any given Sunday, you'll probably find 40 to 50 kids in those rooms, and I think it's a little over 60 kids in total uh, from newborns all the way up through 12th grade who are a part of our church. And uh, that's, that's almost one-third of our population. So we're praising the Lord for that, but uh, it makes for some challenges. And that's where I want to just throw a prayer request in front of you. This is a big deal to us. And I remember hearing the story. This was happening right before we moved out here. Uh, but, but Gospel Grace had outgrown its facility and uh, needed something. And then God gave this property. And uh, just to see what he did there actually inspires us and, and, and strengthens our faith. You can see the big red arrow on the back side of our building. We're praying that God would allow us to build a new addition, and if we drove to the back of the parking lot, that's what it would look like. It would give us another 5,000 square feet. If we pull the roof off, you can see the configuration, and then underneath all of that, 
uh, God willing, we'll be able to just dig out a, a, a nice basement with about a 10-foot ceiling and have a multi-purpose space. And I'm telling you, it will be multi-purposed. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that uh, God is allowing us to do. So please pray with us about that. We got hard numbers back from our builder a couple of months ago, and it was almost $500,000 more than we anticipated just nine months ago. So that made us go, <gasps> but it's, the Lord owns all of this. Like the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And that includes two by fours and cement and dirt and asphalt shingles and, and all of that, right? So we're just trying to figure out, okay, Lord, what's the plan? How do you want us to, to press forward in that? So we're, we're praying over that and would ask you to do that too. Just to wrap it up, this is a passage that always comes to mind when I think of, of our relationship and how could we not but give God thanks for you as we remember you. There are a number of us at Gospel Hope who, who moved to Utah because of what God was doing here at Gospel Grace, and, and God used your friendships, your relationships, just to draw us, and we rejoice in that. Um, but I, as we read through that passage, if you look at verse five, because of your partnership in the gospel, that's the compelling thing. The friendships are great, but they really are secondary to the gospel. Even the, even the opportunity that Salt Lake has right now uh, is only significant by virtue of the fact that it's a gospel opportunity and a gospel moment for us. And then I love what Paul says in verse seven, it's right for us, gospel hope, to feel this way about you all. And we really do hold you in our hearts and we know you hold us in your heart. For you all first are partakers of grace with us and thankfully nobody's been to prison yet but that day may come but certainly we are committed to the defense and confirmation of the gospel together. So may God just continue to keep his hand on, on all the stories that are being written, both personally and then in our, our family of churches. And uh, it's just a great privilege uh, to be with you all. Would you open your Bible with me, please? And uh, we want to look now at, at Romans 8. Do you know people who always seem to, to need the last word in a conversation or discussion or debate? And it doesn't matter, you know, what the discussion might be, whether it is something of a, you know, significant discussion of current issues in our world or even just a time of reminiscing where family or friends get together and they tell stories. These people find a way to have the last word. And it, it seems, it gives us the impression that they, they either know more or they've thought more profoundly on this or they've just experienced more than anyone else in the room. And sometimes it can become a little wearisome, isn't it? And there are certain people who just have a reputation for having the last word. I've often wondered, I, I, I can think of a couple of individuals and I, I should probably strategize a way to bait them at some point and just concoct a story that's so over the top it couldn't possibly be topped, but knowing these people, they'd find a way to do it, right? I mean, you could walk into a room just having returned from a mission to the moon and they'd suddenly have news that not only did they go to the moon in a previous you know, moment of time, but Elon Musk just recruited them to lead the next mission to Mars. They have to have the last word. It's hard to live around that, isn't it? You know, spiritually speaking, there are 
entities, voices, memories, experiences that sometimes feel like they have to have the last word in your soul. Voices that highlight your guilt and shame and wear you down to a place of discouragement and defeat. These voices often become so powerfully dominating in your heart and mind that they are spiritually debilitating. Some of you may have experienced that even earlier in the service saying, I want to sing that, but, and I want to believe those, those lines are true, but not for me. And even when Lucas said, you came in thinking maybe that everybody else is here is perfect, but you are not, you, you heard that and, and wanted to believe the hope that he was offering, but if you're really honest at this moment, there was a louder voice in your soul than Lucas's. Sometimes it is a memory from the past that is raw and painful. Sometimes it's a present-day struggle between what we know we ought to do or even believe and yet the reality of the things we are doing or not believing. Sometimes it's a fearful expectation of a future failure. It may even be you, you fear a future collapse of faith. Some of you have had friends or family members. It's, it's, a little, it's kind of a trend right now to deconstruct one's faith. And some of you may be on the brink of that. There are voices. Voices that seem at this moment to have the last word. That's tension that actually is very common to believers. And the Apostle Paul is in the middle of describing some of that. If we were to go back to chapter 7 and read the whole thing, which we won't take time to do this morning, but you would come to verse 22, and he says something that's rather surprising. Paul writes, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I'm so thankful that Romans doesn't end there. Because if that were the final word of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to first century Christians 2,000 years ago, we'd all file this one, you know, toward the back. It's a real struggle and there's real tension, but it's not the final word. And, and praise God that Paul continues. And your Bibles are open to chapter 8, so back up just one verse. And I want to grab verse 25 from Romans 7 and then read through verse 11 and ask you to follow along, please, as I do that. Romans 7.25 continues. Here's the answer to that tension in our souls Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And, and again, how can that be? But now listen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me for a moment, please. Father, thank you for this mighty word. Thank you that our sin, our guilt, our failure, our weakness does not speak the last word, but you in your gospel and specifically in this passage have given the last word. Oh, Lord God, speak it with such force, such power, such compassion, such tenderness and life that it would be expulsive of every other competing voice in the hearts of those who hear. So come Holy Spirit, do all your holy will for the glory of our Savior who died and rose again, Jesus of Nazareth, amen. I love the words of James Packer in his book that is regarded by many as a classic on the Holy Spirit. It's titled, Keep in Step with the Spirit. He knows that here in chapter 8, Paul balances what the law has told Christians about themselves. And, it's, and in the first seven chapters, really, some of the things that have come to the forefront have been that we have failed to keep God's law. We've come up short of the standard that it is. We, our best efforts are weak, are failing, are, and we are guilty people. And Paul is actually balancing what the law has told Christians about themselves, and, and Packer continues, with what the gospel tells them about themselves. And what would be some of those things? You are loved, you are forgiven, you are justified, you've been saved, and because of that, you are presently safe. And his purpose is to ensure that the gospel, rather than the law, has the last word in his readers' consciences and determines their final attitudes toward God, toward themselves, and toward life. Now, in verse 1, we begin to see the, the, the last word. Look at this with me, if you will, please, because God himself is declaring something about you, and he says very plainly, there's no condemnation. The issue in view, remember, is this tension that we live with between our daily performance, that's kind of Romans 7, and I start to despair at some points, and, and we all do when we get serious about the Christian life, but, but we feel this great tension in our souls between the daily performance as Christians and our eternal position in Christ. And, and Paul has already said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
But what do we do with that great tension? Well, we submit that tension to the mighty declaration of God himself. So notice, if you will, in verse 1, that really the, the, the subject at, in focus is the word condemnation. That's a legal term. It speaks of judging someone as, def- as definitely guilty and thus subject to punishment. So picture yourself standing in a courtroom. Judge and jury are assembled there. The prosecuting attorney has made an, an airtight case, and it is grim. The jury has come back in about 60 seconds and unanimously decided together that you are guilty. And then the judge brings the the gavel down with the sentence and it's condemnation. You are definitely guilty and now you're subject to punishment. But the order, if you look at verse 1 here of chapter 8, the order of Paul's words places an important emphasis. Condemnation is in view, but even the way he writes this passage tells us something. Now in English, when we want to emphasize particular words that we have written, we will put exclamation points behind them or underline them or use all caps or even bold print or highlight them on the page. We want to draw the the physical attention of the eyes to those very words by techniques like that. In Greek, an author like Paul would use word order itself to highlight an important thought. And in this verse, he does not begin with the word condemnation. He begins with the word no. And of the couple of different words he could have chosen, this word in particular indicates that there is not even one little piece of negativity here. There's not even one Uh, not the least shred, if you will. And then the next two words combine together to give us the idea of here's the conclusion. So Paul is, is wrapping his arms around so much of what he has written in the first seven chapters as he's walked us through the gospel, which began with the terrifying reality that we're all guilty before God because of our sin and under his condemnation and wrath. But the surprising turn comes in chapter three where Paul's argument begins to move us toward the fact that there really is a righteousness that all of us need, but you can't buy it, you can't earn it, it can't be passed down through an inheritance of religious tradition. It's, it's a righteousness that comes by faith and faith alone. And then Paul begins to explain how there's more grace in God than there is sin in you. And many of us look back on our lives and say, oh, sin had such a hold, it abounded. That's one of the terms that Paul uses. But he comes back and says, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And then he explains that God delights to show us mercy for Christ's sake. That because of Christ's death, the power of sin really has been broken. And that because of Christ's resurrection, sinners like us who, who, spiritually speaking, die with Jesus on the cross can be raised to a totally new life, a new you. So he's putting his arms around all of that and moving it forward to the particularly for the sake of those who, like him, struggle with the day-to-day realities and tensions. And the term condemnation, as one author writes, is a forensic term which here includes both the sentence and the execution of the sentence. But for believers, there is none at all. And you might say, but Paul, you don't... You don't understand. And he would say, oh, but I do. You don't get the last word. Your guilty conscience doesn't get the last word. Other people around you don't get the last word. 
God himself gets the last word. Now, there are some immediate implications for this, and the gospel, as it's unfolding here, is speaking, first of all, not just to the present tension in the Christian life, but this word speaks so clearly and powerfully to past guilt and shame. Do you see it? Can you think about that with me for a minute? Any of you ever ambushed by random memories of your past failures and sins like I am? I say ambush because some days you're just like you're, I mean, things are going well. You're not perfect, but I mean, you feel like, man, thank you, Lord. You're doing good things, and I think I'm tracking well. And then out of nowhere, something you may not have thought of for a long, long time just like rolls over your soul and puts you in a really bad place, and you feel the, that sense of, of guilt and shame begin to emerge, and you try to process that, those thoughts. And some of you lie awake at night doing inventory of all your regrets. Or when the voice of other people echoes in your heart, reminding you of all your past failures and faults. It may be a parent or a teacher, someone who belittled you in those early years especially and reminded you constantly of your failure and their disappointment in you. Perhaps it was a bishop or pastor Someone you looked up to, spiritually speaking, but week after week, in the course of their preaching or their teaching or even their one-on-one conversations, just constantly reminded you of your weakness and failure. I call it dirtbag theology. Any of you ever labor under that load for a while where you're just told in, in no uncertain terms, you're a dirtbag and you'll always be a dirtbag. So try harder. Be more committed. Be more faithful sacrifice more, give more, serve more. And, and it's, it's, at the end of the day, it's a false gospel because who can do that? But here the Lord himself enters that cacophony of accusing, condemning voices in our hearts and souls and with a mighty no speaks the last word. This word is designed by God to address all of that past guilt and shame. Secondly, it's, it's designed by God to deal with the present struggle with sin. Look back at chapter 7, verse 15 very quickly. It's maybe one page over for you. I do not do what I want, Paul says, but I do the very thing I hate. Well, you know what? Here's the good news from, from chapter 8, verse 1. Even on your worst days, there is no condemnation. And on your best days, there's no added justification. No condemnation for today. This word not only deals with, that present, deals with that present tension, but this word speaks to our fears of future accusation and failure. You know, I love where Romans 8 moves and wish we had time to, to just walk our way through the entire chapter. But as Paul continues to build just one glorious truth upon the other, telling us who we are in Christ and who the Spirit is and what he is doing, it reaches a climactic moment at the end of this chapter where Paul writes, who can bring any charge against God, God's elect? It's God who justifies. And, and the clear answer to that question is no one can, not even you yourself. And though you and I can think of a number of people who might step back into our lives and bring forward accusations that are well-founded, God is saying to us, no condemnation, no condemnation. 
No condemnation for your past, no condemnation for your present, and there will be no condemnation emerging in the unknown future. Now look back at Romans 8 verse 2 because Paul continues to put some things before us that really encourage us and, and give us hope. I mean, that is a mighty declaration, and in and of itself, that final word, so to speak, that last word over those feelings of guilt and shame and fear and, and uncertainty is enough, but he actually adds more to it. And look again at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, the Spirit, and I love how Paul describes him here, the Spirit of life. The Spirit of life actually takes up residence within you and me as followers of Jesus. Now, notice, though, that there are two laws referred to in this passage. There's the law of the spirit of life, and then there's the law of sin and death. And I think Paul is nuancing the term law a little bit, and not so much pointing like to a list of rules like the Ten Commandments. That is God's law. But it seems that he is speaking more of this principle, if you will. There's a principle or something present within our souls that we need to recognize. And, and again, back in chapter 4, or chapter 7, verse 4, Paul had written, we've died to sin, so the spiritual death to sin fundamentally alters the nature of our relationship to sin. But we also know, as I read just a few moments ago in verse 23 of chapter 7, that there is a remaining principle of indwelling sin. The old Puritan pastor John Owen wrote of this in his classic work, Indwelling Sin in Believers. And this law of sin he described as an inward principle that moves and inclines constantly to any action. And Paul describes those struggles well, I think, in verses 22 to 24 of chapter 7. But now, look again at verse 2. That little word for signals and answers coming. Here's the reason you can be sure of no condemnation for or because something has happened. And here it is. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. The law of the spirit of life. A superior presence, if you will, of life has come to dwell in you. And, and the Holy Spirit didn't arrive to just kind of cohabitate your soul with whatever remnant of sin, the habits, the old ways of thinking, the patterns of, uh, of belief that reside there. He didn't just come to cohabit that space, but he actually came to renovate and transform the space and expel what remains of sin. When I was a kid, I would frequently hear sermons that illustrated this conflict within us in terms of two dogs living inside and, you know, those images were powerful for me as a really little kid, partly because we, we didn't have dogs growing up, and most of my interactions with dogs have been quite frightening. So I totally got it. White dog represented, you know, the good part in you, and the black dog, the bad part in you, and whichever one you fed, spiritually speaking, was, you know, going to take control there. And, and I didn't want the bad dog, you know, to be in control. But the, the only problem with that is it, it actually misleads us and, and in some respects outright misrepresents what's really going in in the soul of a believer. There's no command in the Bible that says, feed the Holy Spirit. Even in this chapter, the commands related to the Holy Spirit are things like these. Look at verse 4, walk by the Spirit. Verse 5, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Verse 13, put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Verse 14, be led by the Spirit. He's not a dog. 
And actually, there's no equal power residing in you compared to him. He's the sovereign God. And he has come to liberate you. The spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Those things are true because of what has happened. And we'll come to that in just a moment. But the presence of the spirit in the life of the believer means real freedom in Christ Jesus. Now look at verse 3. what does it mean to be liberated by the Spirit? Well, first of all, the power of sin is being broken. Paul actually goes on to say, God has done what the law could never do. The law cannot break sin's power in your life or mine. It's good to obey. We should obey the commands of God, but don't ever think that your obedience is what it all comes down to as far as transforming your soul from, uh, and life from the inside out. Let me illustrate it this way. Up until yesterday, which I thought, how ironic that I grabbed this illustration and then the, the thing I'm going to tell you has changed a little bit. But up until yesterday, between my house and the gym that I go to, there's one of those radar trailers that was parked on the side of the road. And... We understand how those operate, um, but in case you, you don't drive or actually open your eyes when you're out and about, uh, that little box uh, has a radar in it that will record your speed, and then it will flash the number of your speed, and if your number is bigger than the number it thinks your speed should be, it will also flash the words, slow down, and that typically is what I see. I'd like to say it's just carelessness and thoughtlessness, and sometimes it is, but if I'm really honest, I, like some of you, see that little box as a bit of a challenge. Because <laughs> I know that when I turn the corner uh, and make the left-hand turn onto that street and it begins to pick up the speed of my vehicle, I got about 200 yards to go way beyond that number. And I think to myself, 25 miles per hour is way too slow for someone like me. I was born to go fast, and I know that under the hood of my mighty little 2002 Chevy Trailblazer is a high-octane engine waiting to be released. And I fancy myself to be a drag-racing rebel. I'm actually just a middle-aged fool. So that flashing box with the, or that little box with the flashing numbers actually reveals, though, I'm a lawbreaker. But it doesn't have the power to change my heart, does it? The law represented by the radar, furthermore, is actually weakened by my flesh. I think those thoughts and drive above the speed limit because I'm driving, in one sense, according to my flesh. I fancy myself to be more sovereign in that moment than the local police or or local laws. Well, that's kind of what's in view here for Paul. The law can't change you. It can flash numbers and show you where you've gone beyond the boundaries or where you've come short of the expectation, but 
has no power to change you. But then he goes on to say, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And how did he do it? By sending his own son. His own one-of-a-kind son. And, and notice this, in the likeness of sinful flesh, a quick aside, notice how Paul guards the sinlessness of Christ. In the likeness of sinful flesh is not the same as saying, in sinful flesh. Christ was fully human, real flesh, but he was sinless. But let's return. The main point that Paul is getting to is God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that is to deal with sin. How did he deal with sin? Well, here it comes. He condemned sin in the flesh. And we're back to that important term. The condemnation of sin, as Doug Moo writes, is God's executing his judgment on sin in the atoning death of his son. It's what we were singing of earlier. It's, it's the powerful symbol behind that wooden cross that hangs at the top of, of, the, of the platform here. Another author writes, just as the law of sin produces death, so also the law or ruling factor of the spirit of life brings about life. It does this through Christ Jesus, that is, on the basis of the merits of his atonement and by means of the vitalizing power of union with him. And so here we are at the foot of the cross again, if you will. This is the reason that there's no condemnation. It has nothing to do with your performance in the last seven days or seven years. It is not based upon a trajectory toward, toward righteousness in your life where God says, well, you know, we can kind of see where this is going and I think that guy's gonna end up in a good place or I, you know, I think she's gonna figure this out and so let's cut her a break right now. No, it's based upon the death of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of his life, the shedding of his blood. God condemned our sin in the flesh of the Son, all of it. And that includes the shame and guilt that some of you still carry with you from previous sins. It includes every burning memory that presses your soul into despair. It includes every accusation that rises out of your past guilt. It includes every sin because every sin has been condemned in Christ on the cross and there is no condemnation left for you. Author and pastor Brian Chapel writes of this verse, spiritual health never comes from belittling sin, but from a willingness to bathe its filthy entirety in the compassion of God. Our hearts will not be whole, nor will our lives be more holy if every room and dark corner in them does not echo with this promise. There is therefore now no condemnation. Look at verse four, last thought. The spirit of life leads the believer. He really does take charge. Paul uses the words in order that. This, this was the purpose all along. God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemning that sin in Christ's body on the cross in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, part of the good news of the gospel, and Lucas touched on this earlier, is there, there's a great exchange Jesus says, give me your record of sin and guilt. And now I give you my record of obedience. Perfect righteousness. You get credit for, even though Jesus did all the work. That's glorious. But in conjunction with that work of, of justification is a powerful work of sanctification that the Lord purposes to do. And he sent the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to dwell in you in order to accomplish this, that there would be, in reality, 
a, a fulfilling of the righteous requirements of the law. How do we know that? Look at the next phrase. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, the spirit wants to totally reorient your life, your thinking, your speaking, your living, motivations, and even the end of your actions. The righteous requirement of the law is simply the behavior that, that God requires. And what a marvel, returning to some of Doug Moo's thoughts, that God not only provides in Christ the full completion of the law's demands for the believer, but he also sends the Spirit into the hearts of believers to empower a new obedience to his demands. Return to that little radar box down in Draper between my house and the gym. To illustrate this, how the box itself couldn't change me, but let's say a new indwelling principle of the Spirit you know, moves into my soul with respect of this. And I actually think some of these thoughts are from him. Now I turn the corner, and while I see the posted speed limit, the Spirit says, you know, just on the other side of that box is a park where little children play. And if you look in your rearview mirror, there's a large school where hundreds of students walk to school and walk home or are dropped off for a couple of hours each morning and afternoon. And if you notice where you're driving, it's a residential neighborhood and there are people out with their pets that they love very much. And if you weren't so self-centered self in your thinking about your drag racing fantasies, you would recognize that a genuine act of Christian love in this context, in this setting, on this street, would be to observe that speed limit. And I'm convicted that I really am a self-centered, wannabe drag racing fool. And I've been blind to the opportunity in this one little specific way to demonstrate a genuine love for people. See, that's the kind of influence the indwelling spirit begins to bring in your heart where he actually rewires your thinking, rewires the heart-level motivations, rewires your vision so you can see a world that he has placed you in and even opportunities that you were never aware of before because he really does want to lead you to a place where you are a law keeper. Didn't Jesus say the whole law is fulfilled in two ways, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then love others. That's what it's always been about. But sin corrupts that and obscures that. But the Spirit is determined to change all that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for those of you who despair that the struggle is so intense and, and as far as you can see right now, it just looks like one failure after another. The things I, I want to do, I don't do. Going back to Romans 7, the things I ought to do, I don't. And you, like Paul, often cry, find yourself crying out, oh, wretched person that I am. Who will deliver me? Well, the answer is Christ Jesus will. The Spirit will. God the Father will. That's the last 
word of the gospel. 